Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Sheikh Hamza Karamali. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you, Paul. Always a pleasure to be here. And you're, you're live from Istanbul, aren't you, today? Yes. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, very good. Um, for those who don't know, Hamza is the founder of Basira Education, where he trains parents, teachers, and scholars in high schools, weekend religious schools, and a variety of other educational institutions how to show their students why Islam is true. He's developed a textbook, an online teacher's portal, and is on a mission to train 10,000 teachers. And I'll link to his work in the description below. Now, you've said uh, that you consider Al Shafi to be an inspiration for your own work. And I thought that we could, uh, perhaps you could start us off by telling us who he was, who was Al Shafi, and why is he so important? Yeah, there's so much to say about him. Um, I, so I, I love Imam Shafi, Muhammad Ibn Idris Al Shafi. I studied, uh, I consider him like a teacher, like a great, 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 great grandfather teacher. <laughs> yes. the teacher of the teacher of the teachers of my teachers. Mm. And um, he was a very intelligent man and uh, in a very, his works on very, it's, it's a joy and pleasure to read them. But the there's a statement from him that I've always found really inspiring. And I think it captures everything about him. I think it'll, we'll use it as a point of departure for our discussion today, and we'll come back to it at the end. Um, he used to debate, and we'll talk about his debates, uh, but he had, he said on a number of occasions, he said that I never debated with anyone and wished that he would be mistaken, that my opponent would be mistaken. Um, in another transmission, he said, I never debated with anyone um, wishing to defeat him. Um, and he used to say, I only debated with people meaning wishing the best for them. And wishing the best for them means wishing that the truth be manifest on their tongues. So this is often cited as a spiritual statement. It is a spiritual statement. Um, people will uh, say that it's, this, is what, this is what it means to be sincere. Um, but there's also something more here uh, because it the idea, so the reason why Imam Shafi'i used to um, debate, his debates weren't like the YouTube debates that we see today. Um, they, were, um, they were dialogues um, where he would engage people who disagreed with him and uh, try and understand their position and challenge it. And he would want them to challenge him. Um, and so he was, uh, and so what, what it shows his commitment to reason and rationality. Mm. Um, and I think it represents the opposite of what many people imagine, um, you know, religion to be about, that it's about forcing other people and fighting wars with them and 
making them submit. Uh, but what Imam Shafi'i represents, and I feel that this is, I, I know this is prophetic, is that it's a genuine search for truth. Um, Ghazali, who was a student of a student of a student of Imam Shafi'i, couple of people there. Um, he had a famous statement inspired by this. He said that you should know the people by the truth, not the truth by the people. Um, and and so he was somebody who genuinely uh, wanted to talk to people who disagreed with that, who disagreed with him. And he tried to give them everything he could because he wanted everybody to reach the correct position. Um, it's interesting, it just, it just pause out how the contrast which you made with so many uh, online debates and at Speaker's Corner uh, here in London as well, uh, <laughs> where the ego is primary. And I, and I, I don't claim to be immune from this at all whatsoever, but, you know, uh, you want to defeat the enemy um, uh, because it's good for one's e ego. But one believes, of course, it's in the service of truth, but there's, there's too much testosterone involved <laughs> for it to be entirely disinterested. So our Shafi statement, I never debated with anyone wishing that he would be wrong, is extraordinary um, because it shows sincerity, a care for the truth, a care for the, the well-being of the other person as well, that they should be guided to the truth. So it's quite a different um, way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. And um, it also earns respect in the eyes of other people. He himself used to say that I never, um, I never presented an argument to somebody and they accepted it except that they became great in my eyes. And I never presented an argument to somebody and they just rejected it I, without any rational basis, except that they um, became the opposite. They, they fell in my eyes. Um, and so seeing somebody like that, so if, how I imagine a Shafi'i to be somebody who we could go, we could engage, we could challenge, we could have a conversation, we could disagree with. And, um, and, I, and I think that that's what, earns people's respect. And that's why I find his work uh, inspirational because the the work that I do is in this in the sphere of rational arguments. And um, and I think that this is something that we as Muslims, it's part of our tradition that we need to embrace. I, I completely agree. And, and it's, uh, it needs to be reclaimed by many of us who are uh, perhaps more motivated by, um, you know, conflict and acrimony and ego. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so real knowledge is when you feel secure and you can take other people to what you know to be the truth and you're conscious of the fact that you might be mistaken and you're happy to learn from other people, which I think um, a lot of what you do is um, around this uh, idea too. Inshallah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so Amish Shafi wrote a book. He wrote a famous book. It's called yes, um, it's called the Risala. Okay. And we both pulled up our copies. Yeah, no copies. That is that. Matching matching copies. I have matching matching shirts or something. <laughs> so yeah, this is so, called. Yeah, carry on. What is this called? So this is called a Risala. Risala means a letter. It's actually not the name he gave to his book. It was given this name by other people. There's some stories, um, people challenged their authenticity that there was a scholar who asked him to um, write this book and he wrote it and sent to him as a letter. And so it came to be known as the Rizala of Yama Shafi. And it's, um, it captures why he was so important. So we often hear about the words Islamic law and Islamic jurisprudence 
we conflate the two, we say they're the same thing, but they're actually, they mean different things. Law, law has to do with um, rules and regulations. Um, lawyers and judges, they decide cases based on a law that's there. Um, but jurisprudence is the philosophy of law. So the title of this book is A Treatise on the Foundations of Islamic Jurisprudence. Yeah. So uh, what a jurisprudence would consider questions about um, why the law should be the way that it is. Why should a criminal um, get a jail sentence and not get corporal punishment? Why, you know, why should we, uh, why should we consider digital currencies currency? Um, why should digital contracts be valid? And so these kinds of discussions, um, people will, they'll be more complex and people will debate and they'll have various sides and they'll bring arguments. So Imam Shafi'i, he was the student of Imam Malik. He was also a student of the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, both of whom we talked about. Yeah, yeah. And he was the teacher of Ahmad bin Hanbal, who is the fourth of the four Imams. So he sits right in between all of them and many of them, many, many others as well, who, who didn't um, end up having a long lasting madhab. And he, and he learned from all of them and he traveled and he had dialogues with them. He had debates with them meaning he challenged them, he challenged himself. So he, in these conversations, he brought out the reasoning behind Islamic law. And so his book, Ar-Risara, is considered the first book in Islamic jurisprudence. And there's a science called Usul al-Fiqh, um, the science of Islamic jurisprudence. It talks about why, uh, why, you know, why should a legal ruling be what it is? Why shouldn't it be some, something else? Why do scholars disagree? And uh, so he's considered the founder of that science and it, that's why the, the debates are important. That's why his, uh, his uh, you know, the words that we start, started with that I never debated with anyone and wished for him to be mistaken. It, it's, that's, that's why he became a Shafi'i and he founded the science um, and that's why um, he's significant. Um, so people, they, uh, they recognize his ability to, to debate um, and uh, you know, he was famous for it. And he was constantly growing because of this and he was refining his ideas all the way until the end of his life. So can you give us an example of uh, a debate uh, that he conducted? Yes, um, so I came with two examples. So we'll start with the first one. His mm -hmm. first is a debate with Ahmed ibn Hanbal. So the word debate is a translation of the Arabic munazara. And I'm not sure if it's the right translation, um, a dialogue, but it's this conversation that you're having. So Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he was um, from a group of scholars who are known as Ashabul Hadith. Or, and in Imam Shafi'i's time, there was a split there, was, there were scholars who were Ashabul Hadith and there were scholars who were Ashabul Ra'i. Um, mm. Scholars uh, who, uh, people of Hadith and people literally of opinion, but we'll come to that inshallah. We'll talk about uh, what it means. So Imam Ahmad, he represented the school of the scholars of Hadith. So these were people who studied Hadith. They knew hundreds of thousands of Hadiths 
And whenever there was a legal question to be decided, they searched for a very explicit and direct statement from the Prophet ﷺ to decide whether or not something is the case. So there's, an, there's a question about whether somebody who stops praying is no longer a Muslim. Um, and the vast majority of uh, Muslim scholars, they held that he is a Muslim um, because committing a sin doesn't take you out of Islam. Somebody can be uh, commit sins and still be a Muslim and most Muslims actually do commit sins. And if uh, everybody who was sinful was a disbeliever, then <laughs> I'd be in trouble um, sitting over here as with most of us. Um, but there's one sin regarding which Ahmed bin Hanbal is said to have held that if somebody doesn't pray, then they aren't, uh, then they're no longer a Muslim. And that comes from a hadith, which is a, an authentic hadith, in which the Prophet ﷺ said, he said that between a man and between disbelief and associating partners with Allah is leaving and abandoning the prayer. So this was, uh, so Imam Shafi'i didn't agree with this and the vast majority of scholars don't agree with this. And it's said that Imam Muhammad Hanbal, he also went back on this. But the debate is what I want to get at. The debate is really interesting. So Imam Shafi'i, he said to him, he said that uh, that uh, that somebody who doesn't pray, do you say that he thereby becomes a disbeliever? Ahmed said, yes. Shafi'i said, if he, okay, so let's say he's become a disbeliever. How would he come back? How would he become a Muslim again? Mm. Ahmed said, so it's interesting. He's not looking at the issue. He's looking at the, other side. How, how is he going to come back to Islam? Mm -hmm. So Imam Ahmed, he said, he says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah, and then he becomes Muslim again. Shafi'i said, well, he was always saying, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. So there's, so it doesn't make sense for you to say that he becomes Muslim by saying, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah again. And then, so Imam Ahmed, he said, okay, he becomes Muslim by praying again. And as Shafi'i said, he said that, well, if you say that he's not a Muslim, then his acts of worship, his prayer, his fasting, they require that he first be Muslim before they be valid. So, so and then the, the debate, the way that it goes is that, um, that he didn't have anything left to say. I want to analyze this a little bit because uh, these debates that Imam Shafi'i had, the later scholars of Usul al-Fiqh, they derived principles from it. So one of the principle that comes out over here is that the vast majority of legal rulings, they have a rationale. So they don't just drop out of the sky just like that and obey, otherwise you go to the hellfire. There is some kind of a reason behind it. And the rationale, the scholars of Usul, they call it a'illah. And they have a principle, they say that the illah and the legal ruling, the rationale and the legal ruling, uh, when the rationale is there, then the legal ruling is there. When the rationale is not there, then the legal ruling is not there. And, and so you have to, so there, there, there's a depth 
that you have to have when you're looking at, at the law. And you have to figure out what's really going on beneath the surface. Mm. So when you when somebody sees a hadith, like you know, they're saying that that between a man and 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 uh, disbelief is leaving the prayer, then Imam Shafi'i is saying to Ahmed bin Hanbal that you have to go a little bit deeper and think about it. And you can't, if you just take the uh, immediately apparent meaning of it, it leads to an inconsistency that has to do with the way that the law works. Because it puts you in a situation where you cannot have a rational basis for saying what makes a person Muslim. Because if you say he becomes, he the fact that he stops praying means he's no longer Muslim, then uh, then, uh, then, then how does he become Muslim again? If he becomes Muslim by saying the Shahada, the Shahada is the rationale. Well, the rationale was already there and you're saying that, the, that, that he's not Muslim. So you have a case where the rationale is there, but you're saying he's not Muslim. When you say the rationale is there, you mean that, that that belief was already held by that person. So it wasn't the denial of the belief in the Shahada that was the issue. It was their stopping praying that was the issue. Yeah. They, did, they, they, they never, and at no point did they deny anything in the Shahada. They weren't denying what got exactly. them into Islam in the first place by, the, yes. by testifying that there's the oneness of God and the Muhammad's prophet of God. They didn't deny that. They just stopped praying. Was it just? But yeah. they, they stopped praying. So to read to. To say they need to say the shahada again suggests that they had denied the shahada in the first place, which never was the issue. Have I? Is that what you said? Yeah. So what you said is the point of creed. Many, many, many yeah. traditional creeds. Nothing takes you out of Islam except the denial of what brought you yeah. into it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, so the denial happened. So the, the solution to the problem, say the shahada, is is irrelevant because there's, there's no denial of the shahada. It, it's, it's 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 still operating in a person's head anyway. There's no reason to deny. There's no reason to think that they're not a Muslim in, in denial of shahada because they've not said anything about it at all. They've not uttered any words against it. Yeah. So then, what do we do with the hadith? That's the question, mm -hmm. right? So, well, so what what Ahmed is saying is, forget the forget what you just said. This is what the hadith says. And Imam Shafi is saying that wait a minute, you can't do that because it doesn't make sense. And so he he doesn't. And so what Imam Shafi and the vast majority of of, of of scholars would interpret the hadith to mean that that prayer is so essential to being Muslim that normally the people who would stop praying would be people who aren't Muslim at all. And it's unthinkable for somebody to not pray. You could do any kind of a sin, but you have to pray, and every Muslim praise um we live in different times now but the but that's the they would they would interpret the hadith figuratively in light of this it doesn't because it, it doesn't make sense it, go, it goes against the deeper underlying reasonings of the church it puts you into an inconsistency so uh so so his imam shafi's books and we have a lot of his books they're all in this form they're all dialogues between him and between various people, and um, and they bring out these um, deeper aspects of um, of the law. Um, 
so uh, so this is what this is Islamic jurisprudence. It's thinking deeply about the whys. So what it does is, if you, if you just take this hadith for a second, what it does is that if you don't have the why, then you're just hitting somebody on the head with a hadith without really thinking about it. And the and the conversation becomes, does this person follow what the Prophet is saying or does he not follow what the Prophet yeah. is saying? Yeah. Yeah. So Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he, was a, he used to say that the people of hadith and the people of opinion, this is the people of Iraq, we're called the people of opinion, they used to curse each other, meaning, uh, this is again an exaggeration, meaning they would say, why aren't you following the Prophet? And why are you denying a hadith? Mm -hmm. Until Shafi'i came and he mixed between us. And the way that he mixed between them is that he said, everybody accepts that you have to follow the Prophet Everybody accepts that you have to follow the Quran. That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. If you're a Muslim, of course you're going to follow those things. But the issue is that when you present a hadith, how should that hadith be understood and applied? And the discussion needs to happen at a little bit of a deeper level than actually just citing a hadith. And that deeper level, that's Islamic jurisprudence. And that's mm -hmm. the area in which... Uh, in which um, yeah, it's very, very helpful. I mean, I, I, I've heard this term before, but never quite understood. Who are the people of Hadith and the people of opinion? Al Al Ray, so uh, cursing each other. I mean, so who are these two people? So the um, Imam Shafi'i lived in the Abbasid period. So in the Abbasid period, the capital of the Muslim lands was Baghdad. In the time of the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The capital was Medina. Um, then it moved to Kufa. That, that's where Imam Abu Hanifa, that's his, his school, it comes from there. Um, and then it moved for a while to Damascus, and then it moved to Baghdad. So, uh, so in, but where, as the capital moved in these places, Medina, up until the time of Imam al-Shafi'i, was considered a place of religious piety and learning and knowledge. Mm. And uh, Imam Malik, he was the scholar of Medina, the famous scholar of Medina. Um, and uh, the hadiths in Medina were the strongest hadiths anywhere because people in Medina, they didn't, they didn't fabricate hadith. There was a lot more fabrication far away in the lands of Iraq. And the people of Medina, because they were more religious, and more conservative, they didn't have interesting and uh, unusual religious questions. Um, but the people in Baghdad, which is now the capital, had unusual religious questions. Yeah. Um, and and so the and so, so because of because of these unusual questions, which did not have any kind of a precedent in the hadith. The hadith could not be applied directly. So the scholars in places like Iraq, they used to use a lot of um, analogy, a lot of qiyas and analogical reasoning. And so they became known as the people of opinion. But what's right. meant by opinion is they would make 
analogies. They would say, this is like this, therefore this ruling should be like this. This is like this, therefore this ruling should be like this. And that was the uh, the vast majority of their legal reasoning was in that sphere. Whereas the vast majority of the legal reasoning of the of the scholars of Hadith and Imam Malik represented that tradition. And that's the tradition that Imam Shafi'i came out of was in the was in the sphere of hadith. And so when when the scholars of of opinion, uh, Piyas, they came to a particular conclusion that seemed to go against what a, a hadith was saying, just as we saw now with Shafi'i and Ahmed, then the scholars of hadith, they would say to them that you're not following the hadith. Mm. And the the on the other side, the scholars of and analogy, they would say to the scholars of hadith that you don't think deeply. And, and they would have this conversation, and then, which is not much of a conversation, that's what Imam Ahmed al Hanbal called arguing with each other. That's probably a better statement than cursing. And so Imam al-Shafi'i, he came, he stood in between, and he had this dialogue, and Ahmed al Hanbal, he said that he mixed uh, between us. Um, Okay, so are we going to um, have a snippet from uh, Al Risala to get a flavor? Well, actually, actually, before before I do that, I wanted to take an example of another debate that oh. um, that Imam Shafi'i he had with uh, with uh, Muhammad ibn al Hassan al Shaybani. Oh yeah. So Muhammad ibn Hassan al Shaybani is the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, um, and Imam and Imam Shafi'i he went to Baghdad many, many times. And when he went there, the greatest scholar who was there was Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. He wrote all his books, he studied, attended classes with him, he respected him. And so he used to attend his classes. And after he attended, after the class was over and the teacher left, he would start talking to the students of Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. And he would debate or have a dialogue with them. And um, and he would disagree with them, and uh, so Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani he heard about this, so he said that you're talking to my students, and do you oppose us? Do you, or do you go against what I'm saying? He said no, this is just it's dialogue. You know, you, you have to consider mm-hmm. different perspectives. He said no, um, debate me, and so he and so they had a they had a debate, and this debate's recorded, and it's interesting. The nature of this debate is interesting. So he said, uh, Muhammad Hassan al-Shaybani, who's 20 years older than Imam al-Shafi'i. So Imam al-Shafi'i, he said, I don't want to debate you because I respect you and um, and it's impolite for me to do this. Uh, but Muhammad Hassan al-Shaybani insisted. And so he asked him, he said, what do you say about someone who steals? So this tells you why, why they have these issues in, in Iraq and not in Medina. Right? So you have, you have a case where somebody steals a piece of wood and then builds a house or a mansion on top of it worth thousands and thousands of dinars. And then somebody comes asking, saying that that, that, that piece of wood that's in the foundation is stolen. And if, I, and if you take it back, the whole house will be destroyed. He'll lose a million dollars. So he says to Shafi'i, what, what do you say about this? Um, so Imam Shafi'i, he, dis- he disagreed with the position of, uh, of Muhammad. And he said that, well, I'll tell him that take money, you know, don't cause this guy harm, take money, take, take, take financial compensation instead of the, 
instead of that log. But if he insists, then we'll tear down the house and we'll give his, give his log back. So, uh, so the, the Hanafis, they would say that you don't tear down the house, but he has to take financial compensation. So I'll, before we go forward in, in, the, in the debate, the nature of this debate illustrates the difference between the people of hadith and the people of uh, opinion. Because this, hadith, this debate is no longer about a particular hadith as it was with Ahmed ibn Hanbal. This debate is about a, 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 an issue about which there is no explicit hadith and, it's, and it only happens in a place where people are stealing and doing all of these things that they shouldn't be doing. So it probably wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't happen in Medina. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, uh, so he said, so uh, Muhammad ibn Hassan, he said that, let's say that there's some, someone who has, uh, who, who needs to have an operation. He needs his stomach to be stitched because there's a cut. Mm -hmm. And so he steals thread from somebody and that's used to stitch. No dear. <laughs> I can see where this is going. Listen, you got to you got to taste of the discussions of. Okay. So, yeah. so he said that it's stitched up and it's stolen, mm -hmm. and somebody comes and say and says you stole that thread from me. Mm. So what do you say? Would he have to take out the thread and give it back? He's going to die, mm. right? So Shafi said no. So he said. You've gone against your position. You're being inconsistent. Over there, you said he, you're, you're willing to tear down the house. But over here, you're not willing to take out a piece of thread. So, so this is this is so what's happening here is an analysis of the rationale. Mm. So Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani is saying that. If you say that that you have to take that that log away and the house needs to come crashing down, you also have to say that you tear out the thread and this person dies. But of course, you don't say that. So Imam Shafi'i said, "Hold on." He said that let's say that the log was not stolen and the thread was not stolen. If the log wasn't stolen does the owner have a right to take out the log and make his house come crashing down? He says, yes. He said, if the thread wasn't stolen, does the person have, have the right to pull it out and cause himself to die? He said, no. So he said that this difference has nothing to do with the issue at hand because before anything was stolen, this guy, the, the, the log is something that can be removed and the thread isn't something that can be taken out. So it's actually you who are being inconsistent because when you say these cases are the same, they're not the same. And, and so he said that, how do you, how do you, um, how do you liken something that's haram to something that's haram? We can do like a, like a, actually prepared a detailed examination of the Islam, but I think that will become a bit technical. But, uh, but that's a good, this is an illustration of the kinds of conversations that uh, they used to have. 
And um, and these are the, these are the kinds of conversations that are there in the um, in the risala as well. Right. Um, so shall we look at the uh, get a snippet uh, from the risala to get a flavor of what he was about? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so this section, so the risala, Imam Shafi'i, he says that everything can be inferred from the Qur'an. And he starts off the Risala by saying that some kinds of inferences are direct inferences. Others, they require a little bit more thought uh, because there's actually verses of the Qur'an that appear to be saying something, but that's not actually what they're saying. And there's other, and you have to go to the Sunnah for that. And then you also have to go to what the scholars have said and concurred upon. And you also have to do this thing called analogy, qiyas, where you, um, where you look at the rationale behind rulings and use that to extrapolate legal rulings. And that he considered was the essence of ijtihad. Um, ijtihad is, is inferring the law in complex cases that have not occurred before. Yeah. So, uh, so this is a snippet from a section where he talked about ijtihad. And uh, and so he's talking to somebody. It is, it's a dialogue. And the person who he's talking to is objecting to him. He's saying that by accepting this idea of ijtihad and qiyas, you are accepting that two people can have contradictory positions, and that's okay. Mm. And I, 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 I found that interesting because Imam Shafi'i, he went and he debated with Ahmad ibn Hanbal, or he had a dialogue with Ahmad ibn Hanbal. He had many dialogues with Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. And of course, the part that's recorded is the conversation that happened. But if Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, if he held his position, he would have had an answer to Imam Shafi'i. And that's why he held his position. Um, but they, all of them, despite the fact that they disagreed, they respected each other and they believed that each person was personally obligated to follow the, the results of their own reasoning. Hmm. So Imam Shafi'i believed that Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani was obligated to disagree with him. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal was obligated to disagree with him. And he himself, a Shafi'i, was obligated to disagree with all of these other people. And so the questioner here is saying, well, that puts you into a situation where you are saying that people can hold contradictory positions and they're all equally valid. So Imam Shafi'i, he says yes. Mm -hmm. And he cites a verse from the Quran. And he says that the Quran actually teaches us to do that. And he brings a number of verses. Uh, one of the verses he brings, it's in here. It is, um, it's the it's the verse about the qibla. Actually, it's kind of small over here, but it's in the second paragraph. And in this verse, um, it says that wherever you are, the translation goes, turn your face in the direction of the sacred mosque turn to face the direction of the sacred mosque. There's things that are missing from the translation. Um, there's uh, Shafi'i cited a um, line of ancient Arabian poetry to pro prove his point. He was a poet, he studied ancient Arabian poetry. I'll tell you more about that inshallah. Um, but 
so he's, he, he's saying that after citing the way that these words were used in the ancient Arabic language, he's saying that the, this, is, this verse is saying that you need to try your best to figure out the direction of prayer and face that direction of prayer. So in his time, if you're traveling, you're traveling on a camel, you don't have compasses, um, you don't have GPS. And so you use signs. You, you look at the stars, you look at the wind. Um, and two people might uh, disagree with each other. One person might say, I think that I have to pray this way. And another person might say that I think I have to pray this way. So Shafi'i, he walks his interlocutor through this process. And he says that, well, if, if we're in, in this position where you think you should pray this way, and I think I should pray this way, then what should we do? Who should we follow? And his interlocutor says that each person has to follow what they believe to be the case. Um, and, and this was something that was commonly understood, common practice in that time. There's a translation mistake over here. Um, but what, uh, so what he ends up, what he says is that there's a difference between what a mujtahid believes to be the case and what's really the case. And he, he says that each scholar, meaning him or, uh, or Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani or Ahmad ibn Hanbal, is obligated to follow the zahir, what appears to him to be the case, what he believes to be the case. And they're not obligated to actually reach the correct opinion. They're just obligated to try their best, which is what ijtihad means. Ijtihad means to exert your utmost to figure out what the ruling is. And so he cites this verse, he cites another verse, um, and he uses the example of testimony and, uh, and judges deciding based on witnesses and they're having different opinions regarding the reliability of witnesses. And then he also, afterwards, he cites through his own chain of transmission, so-and-so told me, so-and-so told me, so-and-so told me, that the Prophet ﷺ said that if a judge decides a case based on his ijtihad and his correct, he is rewarded twice. And if he decides a case based on his ijtihad and is mistaken, he is rewarded once. So he said that it has precedent in the Quran, it has precedent in the Sunnah, and and it's and, and this is, in other words, the Quran actually teaches us to try our best to figure out how we should fulfill the divine command and to accept differences of opinion and 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 so and and that's that i think is quite it's quite uh it's quite profound because the quran was revealed to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who is unlettered he didn't come from a civilization but people like imam shafi'i they understood from it this that it has this jurisprudential aspect and it's because of this that the that there was a the law was in was was in the hands of the general public so imam shafi was a judge he 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 worked as a judge for a while but and uh and and the harun harun al-rashid imam abu hanifa's 
um, student was a judge. And so when these judges, they were judging, they weren't judging by a law that's dictated by kings based on presumed divine authority, but they were judging based on this ijtihad process that's happening everywhere in Muslim lands. There's this dialogue, there's this engagement, and there is a affirmation of the obligation of everybody to follow their own conclusions, which goes back to the opening statement that we began with, that I never debated with anyone um, wishing that he would be mistaken, because Shafi'i has a selfish interest in that, because that's how you yourself try your best to come to what you believe to be the correct and right position. Right. Okay, so um, moving on to um, the question. I mean, obviously, Shafi was very influential, but we haven't really uh, addressed um, how he came to be who he was and how did he get there and, and what was it like to become a scholar in his own time? Could you perhaps address that? Yeah, so in Shafi'i's time, there were no um, institutions. You didn't go to a seminary. You didn't go to a university. Um, mm. Learning was all, it was all private learning. You studied with individuals. And um, you sought out scholars who had learned from people, who had learned from people, who had learned from the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So uh, Imam Shafi'i, he has two lines of poetry that are frequently cited by students of knowledge uh, about how to go about studying sacred knowledge. Mm. And I thought that I would, I would uh, unpack them and show how um, Imam Shafi'i's own learning journey um, was an illustration of these verses. So he said, he said, He said, my brother, you won't acquire knowledge you won't become a scholar, except with six things. I'll tell you what they are in detail. He said the first thing is intelligence. So uh, Imam Shafi'i was born an orphan. Um, he wasn't born an orphan. His father died when he was young. Uh, he was born in Gaza, in present-day Palestine. Um, his mother moved with him to Mecca at a young age. He was from a noble family. He was poor. And his mother, she wanted him to learn, so she looked for a teacher. And the first thing that they used to do in those times was they would learn the Qur'an. Um, so teachers of Qur'an, they used to take a wage. And they were so poor, they couldn't afford a wage. So some, there was a teacher who took him on um, without uh, taking, for a very small amount of money. But then when he saw his intelligence, he would, um, he would uh, recite verses of the Qur'an for the other children to write down. And the other children hadn't even written it down, and Imam Shafi'i had already memorized it. So it said that by the age of seven, he'd memorized uh, the Qur'an. By the age of 10, he'd memorized the Muwatta, which isn't, which isn't a small feat, because memorizing the Hadith with the chains of transmission. So he was somebody who was extremely intelligent. And... Uh, as was Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, as was Ahmad ibn Hanbal, as was Abu Hanifa. And he says, 
as Shafi'i says, that the first thing that is required to become a scholar is there needs to be, uh, th th there's, there's intelligence, zaka'un. He said, but you need more than that. He said, you need hils, you need avidness. So avidness for knowledge, um, it means that you give it priority over everything else. So Imam Shafi'i, after he memorized the Quran in Mecca, so he was studying in Mecca, Mecca in those times was a center of Islamic scholarship. You would have in the mosque around the Kaaba, it would be full of people teaching. People would come from all over the world. They would make uh, pilgrimage. They would sit, they would learn. They would sit, they would teach. So you would find scholars coming from all over the world. And so he went after he memorized the Quran, he sat in the circles of these scholars and he would learn. Um, and he would memorize, but you need to write things down because you couldn't memorize everything. He didn't have money to buy paper. So mm -hmm. he wrote on bones. He wrote on pieces of animal skin. He would go to the government offices where they would write documents and he would ask for pa paper, trash paper and write and use the back of them. And at home, and this is all, he's like 11, 12 years old. He filled his mother's home with pieces of bone and pieces of skin and on which he's written written these things. Um, he um, he studied uh, Arabic poetry. He learned he uh, realized at some point that in order to learn the Quran, he needs to learn the language of the ancient Arabians. And he lived at a time when there were still people who spoke the ancient Arabic language naturally without having to learn grammar or any of the any of the other sciences so he actually he would learn with the bedouins who came into mecca he would go out with them and he was known for his um, for his eloquence many scholars of the arabic language they considered the speech of imam shafi'i to be um you know something that's citable to establish a point of arabic grammar and his risala that we're looking at is considered a book of literature um in addition to being a book of uh, jurisprudence um, he uh, so he he learned poetry. He learned fiqh. His first teacher was Musa ibn Khalid al-Zanji. And when he reached 15 years old, when he reached the age of 15 years, his teacher in in Mecca, the Mufti of Mecca, he gave him uh, permission to answer people's religious questions, um, which means that uh, doesn't mean that he has to answer according to what his teacher believes. He said that you are now you can now examine the evidence yourself and answer people according to your knowledge. He was a mujtahid, in other words. So this shows his avidness. And um, and so Imam Shafi'i, he said that you, in order to learn sacred knowledge, you need six things. You need intelligence, you need avidness, you need ijtihad. Ijtihad means to work really, really hard. It means to give sacred knowledge everything you have, to try as hard as you can, to want it more than anything else, to turn your life upside down, and to learn from the best teachers that you can. So after Imam Shafi'i, he, um, he was 15 years old, uh, he studied with uh, in Mecca, he traveled to Medina to study with Imam Malik, who at that point in the Arabian Peninsula was the greatest scholar. Um, he studied with him until Imam Malik um, died. Uh, and uh, and uh, and he was poor. He didn't have enough money to support himself. So he would he would come back to Mecca for a period of time, go to his family, take some money, go and study and and do this back and forth thing. So he worked really hard. That's the third thing. Um, the fourth thing he said was bulga. Bulga means that you need to have 
enough money to support yourself. So Imam Shafi'i, he was poor. Um, after he'd done all of this study, he didn't have enough money to support himself. So he uh, applied for a position as a judge. Um, he went and he worked in Yemen and he worked as a judge and uh, he was very popular and his fame spread and his ability to decide cases. Um, and so he uh, he earned a living. This was just, I just wanted to illustrate this idea, but Imam Shafi'i said that in order, if you want to study, you need to have a source of income where you can support yourself. Um, in Yemen, when he, when he studied, uh, he got into trouble with the authorities because he became too popular. He didn't decide according to what they were saying. So they made a false accusation against him and they complained to the caliph, Harun al-Rashid, and, and said that he was trying to foment a rebellion. And so he's sent as a prisoner to the court of the caliph. And while he's there uh, waiting to be heard, he this is how he met Muhammad al-Hassan al-Shaybani. And so while he's there waiting to uh, his case to be heard, he spent all of his money buying the books of, uh, of Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani and reading them. You know, I, I thought about all the books you have on your there. <laughs> One day I'll. Um, so uh, so there's uh, this 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 is ishtihad. He said wasuhbatu ustazin wa tulu zabani. He said the the other thing he said that you need you need the company of a teacher. Um, so he learned from people, and when he had dialogues with people, uh, you learn from people. I learned from my own my own teachers. They would say that when you study with somebody, it's not the words on the on the on the books that you learn, but you take their experience with you. You learn there's there's an intangible thing. So if there's somebody who has been answering religious questions for a long time, researching for a long time, solving problems for a long time, when you study with them, you you benefit from their experience. So uh, he said that it's you can't just take knowledge from books. You have to have a teacher. And the last thing is a long time. And so Imam Shafi, because of his um, dialogues and his debates, he was studying his entire life for 50 years. And books like the Risala and the other works that he wrote, his Um, consisting of many books, they represent all of this. They represent a lifetime of, uh, of learning. So um, that's how he became who he was. Well, that's uh, pretty amazing. So um, that's a guidebook for for becoming like Shafi, is it? This book. <laughs> Um, actually, there's one more thing that, that wasn't mentioned there. Imam Shafi is famous for another couplet that is frequently cited. Um, in this couplet, he said, I complained to Waqir, one of his teachers, Waqir ibn al-Jarrah, about my memory. Um, he, there was a day he wasn't memorizing as much as he could have. He said, ila ma'asi. And so he guided me to leave sins. And he said to me that knowledge is a light. And the light of Allah is not given to somebody who, who, who is disobedient. So Imam Shafi'i, he, uh, an important part of his scholarship was his piety. That was the case with all the other scholars as well. Um, his students used to say he used to finish the Quran uh, 30 times a month, which is like once a day, which isn't to, we, we think we um, hear about it now and say, how could somebody do that? But there's still people that can finish the whole Quran in four hours, five hours, um, because they know it so well. 
Um, so he was known to do that. He used to divide his night into three parts. The first part of it, he would uh, write sacred knowledge. The second part of it, he was pray. And the third third of it, he would um, he would sleep. So um, uh, he would. Uh, so I think like that's an, that's an important part, and it shows in his um, in his uh, uh, lack of ego, as you said, in seeking knowledge, in um, in, uh, in in the way that he in the way that he debated and he discussed um, this couplet. Actually, what they say is that there's a story that's told. It said that he. Um, he, he, his, uh, he looked at, 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 at a body part of a woman that he shouldn't be looking at. He didn't lower, he didn't lower his gaze and that led to him, um, losing his, um, his ability to memorize for a period of time. And that's what his teacher, he, he advised him to do something for, um, again, like food for thought in our times and rewards and highly sexualized societies. Hmm. So do, do you, I just want to ask, this is the book, I mean, do you recommend that the, the uh, if I can say such a thing, an average Muslim should get this book and read it, or is this really for more kind of committed students of knowledge, let alone for scholars? I mean, are there other people really who should be reading this and perhaps others not be reading it today, or, is, or should everyone read it, do you think? It's actually a difficult book to read. Hmm. So I was, uh, when I was looking for um, a passage to share, it was difficult to share because the issues, like he'll mention issues of intricate issues of divorce, intricate issues of war, intricate issues of um, just various legal details that the average person isn't um, aware of. And the, uh, the depth actually comes in understanding the reasoning. Mm. So it's not, it's not an easy book to read. No, I, I didn't find it very uh, easy to navigate, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, I, I did enjoy just dipping into it and just, just following the, uh, the dialogues and seeing where it led. So um, I did get something from it. Um, and there are some very interesting discussions in here without going into the issues. Which I think it's still worth looking at, uh, even as, as a layman. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. interesting. I mean, <laughs> you know, there was, there was a, um, when Imam Shafi'i was in, uh, you mentioned Speaker's Corner. So um, when Imam Shafi'i was in Iraq, he went there three times. Um, once, the second time he went there, uh, he went to the main masjid and he uh, took a seat and he started teaching. And, um, and, and people gathered around him and people gathered around him to debate because he was a foreigner unfamiliar to them who was saying things that they weren't, um, that they weren't familiar with. And so people came, they were antagonistic they wanted to debate with him, and he debated with them, and he showed them um, that uh, you know he had he had knowledge, and he gained many of them. They, they became his students, and his school uh, was uh, transmitted in Iraq. But I was just wondering, like you know, that maybe it's like the speaker's corner of Baghdad, a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, Baghdad, slightly more elevated um, and intellectually serious. No, there's, there's some good in speaker's corner, but a lot of it's very toxic in my view. But um, but anyway, thank you very much indeed, uh, Sheikh Hamza Karamali, uh, for your fascinating uh, introduction uh, to the, the life and work of Al Shafi and his Risala. Um, I still think it's worth getting for everyone just to dip into, get a flavor, as you say, to the, the jurisprudential issues rather than just citing individual isolated hadiths and verses. There is a, um, when it comes to Islamic law, there is a, a, there's an underlying rationality that needs to be 
uncovered and looked at and examined to to uh, help us to apply it in our world today. So um, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time, sir. You're welcome. Till next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.